bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the August 16th, 2022 podcast. In today's podcast, we'll discuss how government agencies can more easily deploy and how affordable housing stakeholders can better access the $350 billion in COVID-19 recovery funds authorized by Congress. This thanks to recent FAQ guidance from the Treasury Department. Current high inflation has increased the need for affordable housing developers to find additional sources of financing in order to make affordable housing developments financially feasible, which makes the guidance released last month by Treasury very welcome news. While the national affordable housing crisis long predated COVID-19, there's no doubt that the pandemic has exacerbated the gap between affordable housing supply and demand, especially for low-income renter households. On the demand side of the equation, worker wages continue to fall short compared to rising housing costs. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition's 2022 out-of-reach report found that in no state metropolitan area county can a full-time minimum wage worker afford a modest two-bedroom rental home. Now, affordable housing in this context is defined as paying no more than 30% of one's income on housing. The report also found that rents rose 18% from the first quarter of 2021 to the first quarter of 2022 across the country. As certain renter relief provisions under COVID-19 expire and evictions resume, it's clear that the affordable housing supply should be preserved and expanded. But that is easier said than done. Rising construction costs, supply chain issues, and other challenges means that many affordable housing developments that are in the pipeline are no longer financially feasible. These developments need a source of funds to fill financing gaps. And that is where the recently released Treasury Frequently Asked Questions or FAQ guidance is certain to help. As I noted earlier, the guidance will help affordable housing developments better access $350 billion in COVID-19 recovery funds. These funds were authorized as part of the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, enacted in March of last year. Now, the official name of the program is the Coronavirus State and Local Fiscal Recovery Funds Program. That's a mouthful to say, and I'm not fond of using the initialism SLFRF. That doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. And I'm also not fond of the acronym SLURF. So we'll use the term recovery funds in this podcast. So just know that when we reference recovery funds, we're referring to the coronavirus state and local fiscal recovery funds that were enacted as part of the American Rescue Plan Act last year. Now, we had never got to believe that the updated treasury guidance will have a twofold effect. First, there is now increased flexibility to use recovery funds for long-term affordable housing loans. Second, the guidance expands the list of clearly or presumptively eligible uses for the recovery funds. We'll dive further into these changes and what they mean in today's podcast. We're going to start off with some background on the final rule issued earlier this year on using the recovery funds. And then we'll talk about how last month's updated FAQ guidance expands on the previously released rule. Then the bulk of our discussion will be on what the changes are 
and how they're likely to affect low-income housing tax credit financing. We'll close with some action items and how you, the listeners, can access those affordable housing funds. I'll also note, this will be a topic during our affordable housing conference at the end of September in Nashville, Tennessee. The specific dates of that conference are Thursday, September 29th and Friday, September 30th. Now, joining me today is my partner, Dirk Wallace, from Novogratz Dover, Ohio office. Dirk is a frequent guest on Tax Credit Tuesday. He's one of Novogratz's leading experts on the loan housing tax credit and HUD financing. Many of you may know Dirk as the head of the LIHCC Working Group. In fact, the LIHCC Working Group has been working with Treasury since the recovery funds were made available. We were disappointed when the initial guidance created certain challenges or obstacles to using recovery funds to finance affordable housing. Our LIHCC Working Group worked with several trade organizations in encouraging Treasury to make the use of recovery funds more compatible with other sources of affordable housing financing. There was even an effort to get Congress to address the issue in statute if a change by Treasury of their interpretation wasn't made. We were very pleased, it's obvious to say, to see Treasury address the issue in the updated FAQ guidance. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so if you're ready, let's get started. Dirk, welcome back to Tashtra Tuesday. Thanks, Mike. Great to be back. So thanks for joining me to discuss this very important topic. $350 billion in recovery funds are available to help state, local, and tribal governments respond to and recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. When Treasury issued its final rule on the recovery funds earlier this year, it clarified that the funds can be used for capital expenditures, supporting a COVID-19 public health or economic response, most importantly for our listeners, including affordable housing. Now, as you know, that final rule took effect April 1 of this year. However, even though the final rule allowed recovery funds to be used for affordable housing development, there were some obstacles that made it difficult to actually use recovery funds in concert with low and housing tax credit financing. And as I noted in the intro, the LHC Working Group joined trade organizations in outlining some of those issues in a letter to Treasury. So maybe to level set, if you could share with our listeners what some of those former, I like emphasizing former, obstacles <laughs> were. Sure. And uh, yeah, the, the, the two main ways that uh, the recipients can receive these funds would either be through grants or through loans. And I think we all know the obstacles that there are with grants, with income being recognized, reducing eligible basis, things like that. So that wasn't anything new. I think everyone expected that. The main obstacle was was for loans with maturities after December 31st of 2026. So the final rule stated that you could not loan the full amount of the principal. You could only loan the cost of the loan. And everyone was scratching their heads saying, what is the cost of the loan? And then that was word for word from the guidance. And so we started diving in and, and trying to figure out what the cost of the loan is. And there was a few ways to calculate that. And the one that most industry participants gravitated to, to was the, uh, this net present value calculation where you calculated the cost of the loan using the discount rate. And that discount rate was the cost of funding. And then people started asking, well, what's the cost of funding? <laughs> and what discount rate do I use? And what happens if I use the wrong discount rate? And if you're not following the program rules and you're lending too much money into these projects because you used the wrong discount rate, the treasury could come back and make the property repay the loan, or we don't know what they could do, but, but you know, they, they could at least make it so 
you know, the funds would have to be repaid. So there were a lot of issues with these, I guess, with loans with maturities after 1231 of 2026. And that's really the, the problem that most of us in the industry were trying to tackle. And for those that were tackling it, they were basically getting long-term loans where basically a portion of the long-term loan was funded by the recovery funds. And then the lender agency had to have some other source of funds to make up the balance of the loan to be compliant. Is that a high level overview as to some of the structures being considered? That's correct. Yeah. There was this blending concept and uh, another obstacle would be, what if you don't have funds to blend, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> recovery funds. <laughs> so, so yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty much a, a twofold process where first you had to calculate what you could lend and then you had to find other, other sources of financing to, to blend with it. Right. And you're being kind and saying, what if you don't have, <laughs> Right. I'd probably say most agencies didn't have other, uh, sources to lend. So it was a challenge. So let's talk about the actual changes in the recent FAQ guidance. And as I noted, it seems like there's two broad categories of clarifying guidance. One addresses and provides an expanded list of presumptively eligible for housing developments or borrowers, and the other expands how the recovery funds can be lent to affordable housing developments. So let's start with the first one. The guidance expands the list of types of projects that are now clearly allowable uses. So if you could share with our listeners some of the affordable housing programs or financing types that are specified in the guidance. Sure. And I guess we can start with the original guidance and what that had, and, and that really had the housing trust fund and the home program. Those are really the only two programs that were outlined that were clearly allowable. So the expanded list includes many more programs the most notable being the loan housing tax credit program. That's one that's going to impact most of our listeners. But in addition to loan causing tax credit program, you had a lot of HUD programs, HUD section uh, 811, section 202, uh, project-based rental assistance. Uh, there is a whole list of, of federal programs that um, are now clearly eligible uses. If you don't fall under one of those programs, there is also this additional criteria where you met that um, it was a clearly eligible use. And that is if you we're operating a, an affordable housing property that had affordability requirements for 20 years or more. And those, affordi those affordability requirements were serving tenants at or below 65% of the area median income. And that should, I would think, cover most affordable housing programs. And it's not 60% that we're used to. They actually increase it to 65% of AMI. And under the old rule or the old interpretation, uh, most LIHTC developments would try to satisfy the home funds or the housing trust fund requirements such that they would then be presumptively eligible, which now they don't have to focus on, right? That's right. That's right. That's definitely from an administrative perspective. One less thing to have to deal with, which is quite notable. So now let's discuss the second change, which is certainly for most of our clients, the more impactful change, and that's how the recovery funds can be led to affordable housing developments now. Right. And yeah, under the previous guidance, yeah, we talked about how it's just the cost of the loan. Well, that whole cost of the loan concept has gone away. So for loans with maturities beyond 1231 of 2026, now the full amount of the principal can be loaned. So that should have been the big headliner. They should have just put that in bold in the FAQ and said, one out of the loan can be loan made and stop right there. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So 
Well, I was just going to say that is certainly the headline, but it's not obviously as simple as that. So regarding the second change, there are criteria that a loan has to satisfy in order to be eligible to be this long-term loan. You don't have to worry about, you know, calculating and bifurcating and all the rest, but you, there are requirements that have to be satisfied that treasury put in place. Maybe you could describe what those criteria are for this long-term loan to be eligible. And so the, so the loan has to have a term of not less than 30 years. So that they don't want short-term lending four years, five years, and then recycling these funds into some other use. So I think that was the main concern with the cost of the loan to begin with was the recycling or anti-churning provisions that, you know, that they put in there. So having Which, a term, what is the term, not the term of not less than how many years, not less than 20 years. Okay. So, so you have a 20 year loan and then corresponding with the 20 year loan, it has to have an affordability period of not less than 20 years. So, so those line up pretty well where the term of the affordability period would have to be at least 20 years. Then they also carved out loan causing tax credit properties. And they said, if you're an owner of a loan causing tax credit properties, you must waive your right to a qualified contract. And if you, in addition to waiving that right to a qualified contract, you also have to maintain compliance with section 42. And if you don't maintain compliance, then there would be immediate repayment then of those proceeds. And the requirement to waive the right to request a qualified contract, and it seems consistent with the requirement that you have an affordability restriction for 20 years. Right. <laughs> so obviously if you had that, you may not have a, an affordability restriction for 20 years and many states, many allocating agencies already require that it be waived. So it's for many clients, that won't be a significant issue. So this is obviously a welcome change because <laughs> it makes it easier for recovery funds to more directly support the development of life tech financed or other affordable properties, but a long-term loan directly from a government recipient of recovery funds to the particular development isn't the only way that funds can be made available to life tech development. Can you discuss some of the other approaches just so our listeners can have some awareness of other options? Sure. So the three main approaches would be granting the proceeds to the property at short-term loan with a maturity prior to 1231 of 2026 or a long-term loan with maturity after 1231 of 2026. In the guidance, that's what Treasury laid out is this is how you can get the funds to the property. And what are some of the pros and cons of the different approaches? Sure. With, so with grants, I guess the pros of a grant would be no repayment. It's coming into the property. It's a grant. So you get to keep the funds, but like with most grants, there is, there will be issues with income and allocating that income to the partners of the partnership. There's also the eligible basis reduction because federal grants reduce LIHTC eligible basis. And then if you grant the proceeds to a nonprofit. There's still some talk there with whether or not that nonprofit then can turn around and loan those proceeds or make a capital contribution, or there, there may be some issues in structuring that grant to loan or grant to capital contribution. Uh, but with a short-term loan, I think the main con is obvious that it's short-term, <laughs> but I guess on the pro side there, it could be used to maybe bridge some cat or bridge some equity, or if you do have a short-term preservation need, it, it could be used for that. The funds do have to be expended by 1231 of 2026. And the good news is the new FAQs 
stated that the funds are considered expended when they are dispersed to the borrower. So that's good news for both the grant and loan approach is that you don't necessarily have to track every dollar that's going out. As soon as those are dispersed, they're considered extended. And then with the long-term approach, I know we covered that a lot, but again, the pros are now that it's not the cost of the loan, it's the principal. It functions like a lot of other affordable housing programs. Um, the one con that I would say is that it does have to be repaid. <laughs> so it is a loan. It's not a grant. It's not like a PPP loan that might have some type of forgiveness or something like that. It, it is a loan with repayment terms and most likely with an interest rate. So thank you for that overview. And it seems like there's still a little bit of analysis still to be done and some consensus to develop around intermediary uses or intermediaries involved in the money getting into the development. When I say intermediaries involved, I mean, what you described is the government agency itself providing the funds directly to the development and that, that those funds come to development. So that the cash part of that's easy. They get the money. The question becomes, like you say, is it a grant, uh, such that it's income and other issues for the borrower, uh, or is it a loan, either short-term or long-term? And then when I mentioned intermediate entity is the question becomes, okay, well, what if the government agency gives the money to a nonprofit as a grant or a loan, let's assume for the moment it's a grant, then the question becomes, could a nonprofit, obviously if it's a grant, the nonprofit as a general matter, wouldn't have unrelated business tax income, wouldn't pay tax on the grant. And then the question becomes, to what extent can that nonprofit in turn make the money available to a development as a loan or a capital contribution or in turn a grant? And that, that use of a nonprofit, there, there's more work that needs to be done to identify what structured options are available. Any, anything to add or clarify <laughs> to that? It sounded great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's, as a, whenever there's guidance that we're happy with, there's always, it always turns out that there's more to do to think through the other sort of possibilities. But that's obviously one of the challenges of for housing finance, because to fill for housing gaps, you're always trying to find ways to use funds more effectively. But what are some of the things that listeners need to know if they're bringing in this type of funding? There's always issues around layering uh, multiple financing as part of a development of a for housing project. What are particular issues around layering and recovery funds with other for housing resources? And so we talked about the programs that are clearly eligible uses. So if you are under one of those programs, you have program requirements under that program and you have program requirements under the, the recovery fund program. So like with home funds or LIHTC or housing trust fund, you can use these recovery funds to fill the gap, but you must reply with both or must comply with both programs. So there's regulatory and statutory requirements. We went over the term of the loan and again, waiving that qualified contract or the, the right to request a qualified contract. So you don't have to do that for the LIHTC program necessarily. You might have to in your application, but that's definitely going to be required under uh, the recovery program, uh, recovery fund program. So it, it's really just making sure that you're complying um, with the requirements of all the programs that uh, you know your property is subject to and not just looking at the recovery fund program or, or the LIHTC program. So one other question which got posed last week where Treasury hosted a webinar on the use of recovery funds for rural housing production and preservation. And during the webinar, one of the stakeholders asked Treasury that if a borrower repays the loan, and just for our listeners, uh, bear in mind that the 
uh, recovery funds go to a government agency, non-federal government agency, and that government agency in turn makes the funds available uh, to a recipient, a housing recipient. Assume for the moment that it's being made available as a loan, and then that affordable housing development, as Dirk pointed out, you pointed out, Dirk, that it is, if it comes in as a loan, it does have to get repaid. So the question becomes, what happens when that money gets repaid? So down the road, go out 20 plus years, and this affordable housing development repays the funds to the government recipient, to the local, state, local, or tribal government. Does that money that, that gets repaid, the state, local, or tribal government need to go back to treasury? Or can it be used? Can it be used by that agency for other purposes? Yes, yeah, so the the funds can be used by that agency for other purposes. They can they can reinvest that loan income into affordable housing. It's not subject to what what we call their income limit rules at the state agencies. Now, this is going to apply to both principal and interest. So those interest payments are being made right away in years one, two, or three. They can use that and reinvest it in into affordable housing. Because I think before when we looked at the guidance, if there were repayments made before December 31st of 2026, those then had to be redeployed as ineligible uses. Well, now they're saying if you have a long-term loan and part of that is repaid before December 31st of 2026, because it's a long-term loan, there won't be any restrictions on that, those funds returned. That's a good point about the interest, because I posed the question focusing on the principle, that the fact that they're that there is maybe below market interest doesn't mean no interest. <laughs> so the fact that these agencies are getting this interest and then being able to use that for other uses is, can be pretty powerful building up over time. So I want to give you a, an easy question. What have you heard from forwarding stakeholders? What's their response been to the new guidance? <laughs> I guess to sum it up in one word, I would say relief. I think it was a big sigh of relief. They, we've been working with them to develop these models, calculating net present value and discount rates and things of that nature. And just not having to go through that and not worrying about what if we, it was calculated incorrectly. Um, and just being able to lend how they normally lend with other programs. I think it just gives everyone a sense that they're doing it correctly and they're not going to, I guess, run afoul of any of the issues from before. When you say relief, it's not just the borrowers, it's the government agencies as well. It was like, as you were navigating this, government agencies were trying to make the funds available <laughs> and then having to work through these issues to get comfortable that they were making the funds available in an allowable manner in this guidance expands that. So oh, as I mentioned earlier, we're all really pleased with this guidance, but there's always additional questions that come up whenever you get guidance. There's always, it seems like there's this continuing series of issues just end up being a little bit different. So what issues are you commonly facing now with this expanded guidance? Well, some of the state and local governments, they're holding on to these funds because again, they weren't sure if you know, how to, to deploy them correctly. And now that they can be deployed, they're like, okay, now it's time to actually deploy them. So <laughs> maybe we didn't have a lending platform before. Maybe we weren't in the business of lending, but we have these funds. So just getting their documents in order making sure you know, that all the program requirements for this program that they're uh, lending through is being done correctly. And it's at this point, it's, it's, we're in the education stage of saying, okay, here's the new FAQs. They're new requirements that were never there before. 
let's make sure that these are getting into the documents and everything is being done correctly. So as I noted earlier, Dirk, there's always unanswered ambiguous issues surrounding any guidance from Treasury. And that's not a critique of Treasury. They do a wonderful job. It's just that every time you read guidance, there always ends up being additional questions that come into being in terms of what certain words mean and what's allowable and not allowable. And it can be frustrating, I know, for Treasury to get additional questions after you give guidance. And it's also frustrating for clients to say, why are you asking so many? Why is this so complicated? And why do you have to ask this question or that question? But clearly you have to know, you have to develop answers to these questions at different views. And that's one of the roles that the working groups provide is a forum to discuss issues that are ambiguous or unanswered or questions and develop some sort of consensus views. It's always better to travel in the herd than it is to be out there with a unique interpretation that most others aren't agreeing with. So when you look at this guidance, what are some of the unanswered ambiguous questions that remain that are the working group will need to develop some consensus around? Yeah, so when I first looked at the guidance, I focused on the loan causing tax credit carve out and the rules there, because that's going to be a majority of our, you know, our listeners and our clients. And when looking at what life or loan causing tax credit properties need to do, one of the criteria is that owners must repay the recovery funds in full at the time a project becomes non-compliant. And I looked at that and said, what does non-compliant mean? And the one example or two examples that it gave, it just said, including and talked about 42 G, which is the not meeting the minimum set aside. And it referred to the project, not a unit. So you can look at that and maybe say, okay, well, as long as I meet the minimum, the minimum set aside, am I okay? Um, or if I have a few units that are non-compliant that were funded with recovery funds, do I have an issue? It also talks about maintaining compliance with section 42 through the extended use period. Because as we talked about before, this is a 20 year term. So the compliance period is 15, and then you have at least five more years, which you will be in the extended use period. In the extended use period terms, state and government agencies can put various things in there. Extended use agreements may not be uniform across the United States. So looking at some of those extended use agreement terms, one of them is typically that the applicable fraction must be maintained throughout the extended use period. Well, if you agree to 100% and now you're at 98% or 95% or whatever, you're not maintaining that 100% applicable fraction, does that mean that one unit might be able to cause non-compliance during the extended use period? So these are questions that we're going to raise. What does non-compliant mean? If it said limited to, I think we would be, we would like that a lot better than including when it talked about the minimum set aside. But yeah, that's definitely one thing that, that stuck out to me is the follow-up question. Guidance on the guidance. <laughs> In terms of addressing this question, I sort of think of it as the, you know, the state, local, or tribal government that has the funds, you know, they could simply in their loan document to the project, put various requirements in that aren't as expansive as the actual guidance, as the words that are in the FAQ, such that a borrower would know it isn't due, but I suspect that most state local tribal governments won't do that, that they'll actually just parrot <laughs> the language uh, from the FAQ in part so they know that they're providing terms consistent with the FAQ. So the risk ends up being on the borrower in terms of 
when that they have to repay the funds and not on the government agencies or when that it was using the funds in a manner consistent with the FAQ. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. Yes. Okay. So uh, thank you very much, Dirk. Maybe one last question, and maybe I should have started off with this question at the beginning. We sort of, throughout all of this, assumed that listeners knew about the funds and knew how to go about accessing the funds. <laughs> what if I'm a listener and I think this is great. How do I know if funds are available for my project? Certainly join the working group and reach out to Dirk is one answer. <laughs> Any other advice you'd give a listener? I would start with your state finance agency. A lot of states allocated funds to state finance agencies. There are also cities, counties, state and local governments um, you know, that have these funds. There are some smaller cities that were coming to us, asking us for guidance in, in the beginning. So we know that there are a lot of cities out there that have these available. But yeah, I would definitely start with your you know, state finance agency and go from there. Great, good advice. So thank you, Dirk. And please do stick around for our off mic section at the end of the podcast, where I'll ask you some fun off topic questions to get your uh, words of wisdom and tips. To our listeners, be sure to tune into next week's podcast. My partner, Nat Ng, and Novogratz Director of Public Policy Government Relations, Peter Lawrence, will be joining us to discuss updates on the massive reconciliation proposal that includes $369 billion in clean and renewable energy provisions, including extensions of the reduction tax credit and investment tax credit. And if you are a formal housing developer, know that some of these provisions will be very applicable and very helpful in terms of bringing renewable energy to your affordable housing development. You can make sure that you're notified of that episode in each week's episode by following and subscribing to the Task Threat Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novago.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to and stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Task Threat Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Also, if you are enjoying the podcast, please take time to rate our podcast. Rating our podcast helps other people learn about Task Threat Tuesday. So now I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section where listeners can get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So our listeners can't see, but you're grinning a bit there, Dirk. <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> you're like, you'd rather be getting advice on affordable housing tax issues than... <laughs> so what's a work or life hack that you could share with our listeners that you found to be useful? So yeah, this is going to be a life hack. And one that I came across, I would say a few months ago, whether you're hiking or boating or camping or you're outdoors, you're taking a cooler. And we've been noticing that ice packs take up a lot of room in the cooler. So rather than take ice packs, you take a water, you take a few water bottles, freeze them. So you're freezing the water, use that as your ice pack. And then I don't know, about eight, 10 hours later, if you need a drink, now all of a sudden your ice pack still became a nice cold drink of water. So dual purpose there. And yeah, I've been using that for a couple months now. Now that's a great life hack, but that's also a travel hack. Ah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> <Not very> true. <laughs> <laughs> 
And my next question deals with travel hacks. You can't use the, the frozen drink going to security, <laughs> the thaws that you can then drink it in flight. You can't use that as your travel hack. So the next question for our listeners are the Novograd fall conference season begins next month. As I mentioned earlier, we have our formal housing conference in Nashville on September 29th and 30th that kicks off our fall season of conferences. And many of the attendees will be traveling to that conference and to others. So what's your favorite travel tip that's not that uh, freeze a drink to get through security? <laughs> so I was really into electronics when I travel and making sure you always have a full battery charged. Also only taking one pair of headphones and not taking three pairs of headphones because when you're on the plane or somewhere else. So there's a few things that I've found. One thing is called Airfly and Airfly is a device that you can plug into the back of back of your seat for the in-flight entertainment. And it's a Bluetooth device that pairs your wireless headphones with the seat back. So you don't have to bring additional headphones with the right attachments and, and you can actually use your wireless headphones. So I've been using that for a few months. It's great. And of course, after I bought that, I think I was on a flight a couple of weeks ago. And now on that flight, you could actually pair your headphones with the pack, but I don't think all flights are like that now. <laughs> The other thing is, is always having a, a battery pack, one that can recharge in all of your devices. And I actually carry two with me when I travel. Um, one is a power bank that can charge your MiFi or your cell phone, whatever. And then the other one is a smaller one. It's very slim. It's worth one charge. And when I'll be at our tax credit conference, I'll have it in my suit pocket. It gives you one charge. It's called a clutch and it'll keep you at the conference all day. So you don't have to go try to find a power outlet. You don't have to go back to your room. You can just stay charged with, uh, with that device. So definitely a lot of devices out there that can help you out when you travel. No, those are great tips. And I just noted Airfly. <laughs> <laughs> and how easily does it do the syncing? Yeah, it's very easy. Yeah, you just push a button and it pairs right away. Yep. That's great. And, uh, and one tip that I use, which is it's not as significant a travel hack as it had been in the past, but it still comes in handy every once in a while. And that is to bring sort of a short multi-prong extension cord. <laughs> and in part, it's because oftentimes I would go to the airport and look for a outlet and they were all taken. And if I have the multi-prong extension cord, I could go to somebody and say, do you mind if I hack your power source, you'll still be able to charge, but I can charge too. And it was a way of being able to find power outlets when I was working out power outlets. But the good news is more and more airports have more and more uh, power sources. That's not as significant a hack as it's been in the past. So thank you again, Dirk. And to our listeners, I'm Mike Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.